The state is the ultimate arbiter in every case of conflict that arises, including conflicts involving the state itself. Now, if you hear this type of definition, uh, you immediately realize that this is a very unique type of institution. Just imagine that you get together with some friends and suggest that as a solution of social problems, in every case of conflict that I have with you, I will be the ultimate judge who is right and wrong, including also in cases of conflict that I start with you. This is why all states are interested in taxation. We all know that if we have a conflict with the state that the state has actually caused, it is agents of the state that then decide whether they were right in hitting you on the head or they were not right. And you can predict, of course, what their decision by and large will be. Taxation. If such an institution exists, and it does exist, then the consequence will be continuous expropriation and exploitation of property owners. So there is then an alternative source of income to the state besides taxes, and that is trying to gain control over the production of money itself. This is why, this is why all states are interested in taxation. We all know that if we have a conflict with the state that the state has actually caused, it is agents of the state that then decide whether they were right in hitting you on the head or they were not right. And you can predict, of course, what their decision by and large will be. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters, and Odyssey as well. Uh, I want to give credit to uh, Romero Synths. That's his YouTube channel. Uh, he's the one who did these hop waves, so you can go check him out if you want to see some more of those and some other stuff. He's got he's got some other cool libertarian, whatever you call that, uh, that uh, genre. Uh, wave? I don't know. Something like that. Vapor wave. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, go, go check him out for sure. Let him know I sent you. Uh, he, he said it was cool if I use his stuff. Not that I believe in IP anyways. Uh, today, my guest is Toad. We're kind of continuing our series on uh, democracy, the god that failed. Uh, this is starting to get juicy. I read ahead uh, on this one. Uh, so this is a fun one. Uh, it definitely should spark some conversation. I do want to let you guys know for Patreon purposes, I am now no longer doing the public live streams. Aside for... My four Pony Boy series, and then like, I don't know, maybe if I get like huge guests or something, I I don't know, but uh, you know, especially like a current event thing, maybe I will, cause like, yeah, I'm not gonna like put it behind a paywall and wait a week, cause that then no one gives a shit by the time it comes out. But I don't normally cover current events, so it shouldn't be an issue. Uh, so mostly speaking, you know, 90 plus percent of my content will be behind the paywall. And by what I mean by that, it's not like permanently. Like I said, it'll still be similar. I'm just no longer in the public live stream. So if you want to be able to have access to live stream, there's a live stream right now, but you got to be a patron. So it's patreon.com, just no way Jose 2020. What will happen is after I do the live stream, roughly about a week or so later, depending on how my you know, schedule of what I'm dropping goes, uh, it'll come out. Uh, it'll be public at that point. So if you want to be able to get access to stuff earlier, it's only the lowest is two bucks. It's all you got to do is two bucks, two bucks a month. Uh, and uh, that'll get you access to that. Uh, I have other, other levels of five, 10, 20, 
Uh, the $20 a sponsor. Uh, the other ones have perks too, but you know, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna list it. If you want to know, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you know. It says it at the Patreon as well. But the highest level is 20. Those are my sponsors. I'll read them off every episode. I'm Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. If you look at the hell out of the country, he's your guy. He has as a podcast and as a business. He, uh, he will he will literally hold your hand through the process. Uh, I also have Jeremy, who has an Etsy shop, uh, Etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. Uh, and his, you can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. And Toad, my guest, uh, uh, you can follow him at TPH underscore Toad, and he is a co-host for Tower Power Hour. Actually, not Tower Power anymore. It's Tower Gang. We rebranded, uh, and uh, so am I. Uh, so if you don't, if you want to see me and Toad, it's also Clint Russell, Reed Coverdale, Top Lobster, Fat Dave. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a you know, boy band uh, podcast essentially. Uh, but if you like uh, offensive comedy done in a subpar way, we're your guys with a little bit of libertarian. Uh, uh, you know, a theory mixed in occasionally. Uh, if, if anything, we usually use that for some of our sources of humor. Do uh, dirty uh, libertarian jokes that only libertarians would get. Uh, so it's it, it's a fun show. I highly suggest checking it out. But uh, yeah, with that, let's go ahead. Oh yeah, toplobster.com. You're supposed to check out for 10% off. You can get my merch. You can get a Tower Gang merch. You can get, uh, you know, Liberty Lockdown, uh, you know, Naturalist Capitalist, Break the Cycle, a bunch of other stuff. He also has stuff that's not show related. You can go check that out. Uh, Howley suggested. He also does does merch for like Legion of Skanks stuff like that. He's a fucking dude. But uh, enough uh, bloviating about him. Let's get Toad in here. Hey, what's up, man? What's up? Yeah, that's right. We uh, Tower Gang. Now we are a uh, boy band, and we're just about as gay as one. So hell yeah, dude. Uh, and I'm Tower Gang Toad now. I, I rebranded my uh, Twitter at as well. So. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! I'm uh yeah I'm I'm looking forward. He's uh tops rebranding like the aesthetics as well too. I like the new aesthetics he's got. He's already got you a PFP with kind of similar aesthetic. Uh, yeah. He's gonna make one for each one of us. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, it's like every time I get nuked off Twitter, I uh, top makes me a new one. It's been a minute, so I'm I'm feeling a little jealous right now. I yeah. just have some uh something dicky threw together right now as a some Photoshop thing. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess enough uh, jerking, jerking the chain. People are here to, here to listen to Hoppa. Are you, re- <laughs> are you ready to get into it? We're on the third chapter yeah, on marquee democracy, public opinion, and delegitimation. Yeah, uh, um, I, I am sad by the way that you're not doing public live streams anymore. I'm like, why is the viewer count lower than it was <laughs> on the other episodes? Like, what's going on, man? Yeah, I was telling you before, I think it like really probably fucks me for the algos for YouTube because I think really? the more view because like essentially I end up releasing two versions because I have the public live stream, I take it down, and I have to re-upload it later so then it's like i you know mm, I, that's you know, true yeah yeah like you it seems like the algorithm on youtube is like the more views you get the more likely you get more views it's almost like a, a sort of exponential maybe not exponential is not the right word so uh yeah it kind of like screws me over but yeah and also it's i just want to provide more uh more uh incentive for my patrons and uh, you know fair enough actually yeah. something you know so uh yeah. but yeah um well, let's get into this ma'am yeah. So. Um, it is appropriate to begin with a few observations on Ludwig von Mises and his idea of a free society. The program of liberalism, wrote Mises, is, if condensed into a single word, would have to read property, that is, private ownership of the means of production for in regard to commodities ready for consumption. Private property is a matter of course and is not disputed even by the socialists and communists. All the other demands of liberalism result from this fundamental demand. Based on private property, Mises explained, the emergence of society, human cooperation was the result of the natural diversity of a people and property and the recognition that work performed under a division of labor is more productive than work performed in in self-sufficient isolation. He explained, If and as far as labor under the division of labor is more productive than isolated labor, and if and as far as man is able to realize this fact, human action itself tends towards cooperation and association. Experience uh, teaches that this condition, higher productivity achieved under division of labor is present because it's it's caused the inborn inequality of men and the inequality in the geographical distribution of the natural factors of production is real. Thus, we are in a position to comprehend the course of social evolution. Yeah, um, those are some good uh, Mises quotes there, which is uh, interesting because, I mean, there are certain things in uh, liberalism that I 
kind of take issue with that uh, Misa says, but he is really good on most things. And the people that like make fun of the, like the classical liberal types that make fun of the Mises caucus and will like throw out all these like Mises quotes that uh, seem to be in opposition to like the Mises caucus types. They like completely ignore stuff like this where Mises is, um, you know, like basically saying that uh, humans are uh, inherently unequal and that that's why you need division of labor and things like that. And it's very uh, capitalistic. And yeah, I mean, he's just, uh, he's saying that, he, yeah, equality is not natural basically, yeah. which is uh, kind of a Rothbardian uh, point to make as well. So yeah, it is. It's a common thing that certain ilk, uh, especially us like Rothbardian and cap types, uh, especially the classical liberal types will, will take these, um, you know, little clips of, of quotes that Mises said and try to throw it in our face of like how his support of democracy and, you know, other things. And mm -hmm. what the portion, a lot of the stuff we're going to be reading in this stuff is essentially in some regards a rebuttal to a lot of that. And it makes you, because what Mises was talking about with his idea of democracy was a little bit different. And uh, I mean, we'll definitely get into it, you know, as we're reading yeah. this, because Hoppe really breaks down like mm -hmm. why these people are, kind of retarded essentially <laughs> like it, it, yeah i mean it, we'll, we'll, but yeah we'll continue to get into that yeah um, yeah i don't know if there's anything else to say there but just like yeah i mean talking about uh the division of labor basically implying that um humans need to cooperate implying that there needs to be a hierarchy of some kind just sort of along the hoppy and uh natural elites uh way of thinking i guess if you want to uh consider it to be that way like different humans have different skill sets so you want to allow them to be able to uh focus on those things essentially and uh you know find what their uh niche is essentially and do what they are good at and yeah. cooperate that way if the emergence of society uh, human cooperation under uh division of labor can be explained as a result of self-interested action it is also true that mankind being what it is murderers robbers thieves thugs and con artists will always exist in life and society will be intolerable unless they are threatened threatened with physical punishment the liberal understands quite well wrote mises uh i mean i guess before i continue with the mises quote i mean it, it is a good point to point out uh you know the, the the life in society will be intolerable unless they're threatened with physical punishment which it sounds like a status concept on his head but then you realize like no he's just talking about property infringements and the idea of that you're able to protect your property and uh, your property is essentially, um, you know, protected by violence. Whether you you uh, delegate that role to the state or do it yourself, um, you know, it's at the end of the day, all property rights, um, you know, they, in, a, in a certain like realistic sense, they kind of don't don't exist if you aren't going to do anything about it. It's kind of like, okay, cool, you have property rights, but are you going to actually do anything about it? Like. I mean it more like the egoistic sense. Like I'm not saying like uh you know in the in a Rothbardian sense yeah they exist. I just more mean like of what use are property rights if you don't enforce them? Right. <laughs> like, right. So. Well, exactly. And I, yeah. yeah. I mean that seems to be kind of like one of the divisions amongst like the liberty sphere that's going on right now, especially like in the age of COVID, where you have some people that kind of just focus on like the theory aspect of it. And it's like, well, you have these property rights, and it's like, well yes like uh you know inherently yes like you do have these rights but those rights can be taken away from you unless you're prepared to defend them yeah so and and that's i think kind of the stance that like i take and i guess that you take as well where it's like yeah like if somebody is uh yeah threatening me i'm going to defend myself you know like yeah <laughs> all right let's continue this mises quote that without resort to compulsion, the existence of society would be endangered and that behind the rules of conduct whose observance is necessary to assure peaceful human cooperation must stand the threat of force if the whole edifice of society is not to be continually at the mercy of any one of its members. One must be in a position to compel the person who will not respect the lives, health, personal liberty, or private property of others to acquiesce in the rules of life and society. This is the function that a liberal doctrine assigns to the state, the protection of property, liberty, and peace. And mm -hmm. all right, so right there, you just broke down kind of your standard boilerplate understanding of the purpose of government, which I would say even right. a lot of us ANCAPs, in theory, if a government only did that, then it would be a just government and it would be nothing. Really, there wouldn't be anything to impose because if they yes. were if they were actually respecting property rights, I mean, you know, 
we as like ANCAPs understand then that's not really a fucking government. So it's kind of like a it's kind of a conundrum in and of itself. But essentially, if a state actually did that, if this entity, yeah. if there was an entity that all it did was protect uh, property, liberty, and peace, or whatever, then it's mm -hmm. like okay, like well, we have nothing to complain about. And this is the the utopian idea of like a, I guess a, you know, like your constitutionalist, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like this is yeah, this is sort of this is the idea, yeah, that. The idea is that uh, the U.S. were founded upon, essentially, and that did not work out so well. Yeah, but yes. and in a certain uh, sense, that's even what we want. We want an entity that, mm. whether it be us, some sort of uh, association that we're a part of, or or a community, or whatever it ends up being, we want something that protects property. Yes, you know, like so. You know, whether that's you being a self-sufficient person in the in the in the woods, because that's how you want to live, or you want to be part of this. Uh, you know, HOA ask Erico society where it's like everyone agreed to a contract, you know, under to abide under certain rules. If they come in this live in this area, then okay, you know, it's that you have your options. So, right. And I think it's, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, the fundamental understanding here is uh, essentially how like a government is going to grow itself and how a government actually operates. Like a government is essentially not going to adhere to just that however yeah we can still prefer that a if a government exists it will behave in that manner because that yes. is closer to uh what like a private uh like defense agency or something would uh be doing so yep if this is accepted how is a government to be organized so as to assure that it will in fact do what it is supposed to do protect pre-existing private property rights in view of what I shall say later on in favor of the institution of monarchy, Mises's liberal opposition to the ancient regime of absolute kings and princes is worth noting here. Kings and princes were privileged personae. Almost by definition, they stood opposed to the liberal idea of the unity and universal universality of law. Thus, Mises stated, the liberal theory of the state is hostile to princes. The princely state has no uh, natural boundaries. This is Mises speaking, by the way. Mm -hmm. To be an increaser of his family estate is the ideal of the prince. He strives to leave his successor more land than he inherited from his father. To keep on acquiring new possessions until one encounters an equally strong or stronger adversary. That is the striving of kings. Princes regard countries no differently from the way an estate owner regards his forests, meadows, and fields. They sell them. They exchange them, and each time over the uh, each time rule over the inhabitants is transferred. Also, lands and people are, in the eyes of princes, nothing but objects of princely ownership. the f The former form the basis of sovereignty; the latter, it's his the appurtenances. That's a weird word of of land ownership. From the people who live in his land, the prince demands obedience and loyalty. He regards them almost as his property. I do want to respond to that. I feel like the Hoppian answer to that is yes. Because <laughs> if you read it, he is saying that a mm -hmm. prince regards this as his property, and like obviously not good to be regarded as a human as someone else's property because we, you know, regard ourselves as our own property. But right, the so, made the point Hoppe makes is it's preferable because at least a you know a monarchy treats its you know its state as a property and has these economic incentives to generally make it kind of better. Although it does have some issues, you know. Uh, I guess in a sense you could say you know the same you know economic calculation problem to some extent, just not to the same degree as democracy. But you know in a democracy these are more caretakers. They don't have they don't have this vested interest in to grow this thing economically so that they can sift more off. If anything's a temporary thing, they just want to take as much money off of it while they can. Uh, right. So um, yeah, this this is about to get interesting. I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, like that quote from Mises right there, I think is something that Hoppe would agree with. Yeah. That yes, like this monarchy, this is a state. Uh, he's talking about how uh, the monarch will uh, attempt to, you know, he'll sort of treat the property like it's his private property. He'll want to pass it on to his heirs. He might want to grow that thing. Like, yes. However, I think as Hoppe is about to point out here, Mises then starts to draw like incorrect conclusions uh, from this. And he starts, I believe, uh, promoting democracy as an answer to this, whereas Hoppe yeah. would say that that's actually he doesn't agree with that. That's a step away. Well, from he does and he does it. I don't mean to spoil okay. a little bit, but I, right. I, I did read ahead. And I mean, I know if you've read this before, but you don't remember. I, I have, I don't remember. This I just, exactly, I just but... read this like a few days ago, but uh, I mean, although I've read it before, uh, but uh, he gets into the point of, but what does Mises mean by democracy? 
He, Mises okay. does yeah. not mean when he says democracy, he's not meaning what people, the classical liberals that try to throw this in Hoppian's faces. He, he does. They don't mean the same. Th- like Mises did not mean the same thing as that. And we'll, we'll we'll cover that. Well, yeah. So of course, yeah. The uh, classical liberal types are also yeah. They're going to be taking Mises out of context in uh, in various cases as well. Yeah. So. Yep. As Mises rejected a princely state as incompatible with the pr- uh, protection of private property rights, what was to be substituted for? His answer was democracy and democratic government. However, Mises' definition of democratic government is fundamentally different from its colloquial mm. meaning. Okay. Mises grew up in a multinational state and was painfully aware of the anti-liberal results of majority rule in ethnically mixed territories. Rather than majority rule, to Mises' democracy meant literally self-determination, self-government, self-rule. And accordingly, a democratic government was an essentially voluntary membership of organization in that it recognized each of its uh, constituents' unrestricted right to secession. So yeah. that is the key point. Like he regarded mm-hmm. democracy, and ironically, you know, we at one point, you know, we in the royal we as like the United States did in the Civil War. At one point, the Civil War changed all that. Uh, so yeah. you could make an argument that we had something close to what Mises wanted at that point, sort of, maybe, I don't know. Right. So, yeah, uh, Mises, uh, well, yeah, as we know, uh, Mises is like a minarchist. So, I mean, perhaps he was more of like in favor of like the constitutional, you know, like the U.S. like sort of like republic uh, that was established, uh, you know, at its founding, essentially, like something like that would be more of like the Misesian preference, I suppose. Um but yeah, the point, one of the points here uh, is that yeah, Mises definitely was in favor of secession, which is something that, of course, these like classical liberal types are just going to ignore that because they like to shit on secession all the time. So Yeah, which um, Mises, it, like I, I haven't read nearly enough Mises. I've read a couple of his books, but, you know, especially the way Hoppe is characterizing him. He's one of those minarchists that's, uh, a, it sounds like if, you know, especially the way he's about to continue to explain what he believes uh, with what his you know description of democracy is, he's essentially an anarchist. Like he's one of those things where like it's kind of like anarchists who are like, well, I just want you know everything to be voluntary, but I still want a government. And you're like, okay, well, that's not a government. So this is kind of the same idea with with what Mises is saying because he supports se- secession down to the individual. And at that point, yes. it's a fucking it's it's essentially yeah. <laughs> like, if if anyone can leave and it's completely voluntary, it's. I mean, like, yeah, we can quibble over semantics and mm. be like, well, no, this is technically anarchism. This is technically anarchism. It's like, all right, well, we're basically talking about the same thing at this point. So who cares what we call it? Right. <laughs> you, you can kind of say the thing about the same thing about Ron Paul, really. Yes. But, yeah. 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 Um, all right. Liberalism, explained Mises, forces no one against his will into the structure of the state. Whoever wants to emigrate is not held back. And when a part of the people of a state wants to drop out of the union, Liberalism does not hinder it from doing so. Colonies that want to become independent need only do so. The nation as an organic entity can be neither increased nor reduced by changes in states. The world as a whole can neither win nor lose from them. The right of self-determination in regard to the question of membership in a state thus means whenever the inhabitants of a particular territory, whether it be a single village, a whole district, or a series of adjacent districts, make it known by a freely conducted plebiscite that they no longer wish to remain unif- uh, united to the state to which they belong at the time. Their wishes are to be respected and complied with. This is the only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and international wars. If it were any way possible to grant this right of self-determination to every individual person, it would have to be done. So there you go. Mm. <laughs> like, I, I like, yeah. so all the classical liberals who use Mises throw in your face, I want people to, Anyone listening to this, rem- remember this aspect. These are these are word games people play. Uh, people who don't really understand what they're talking about, they just try to you know take little snapshots of different thinkers and try to use it to fit their given narrative. Oh, they words would never can, do that. <laughs> yeah, words take on different meanings over time, and that can make a huge difference. Because, for mm. example, Mises talks about liberalism a lot. How he defines liberalism, I guarantee you, is not the same way most people define liberalism now. How he defines democracy no, is not, not the same way he, people define democracy now. He was pro-secession, and most of the people mm. who are who you know try to uphold Mises as you know to promote minarchy or democracy or what have you, they miss this key point. It, like right. once the, the the secession thing is gone, it throw it fucks it all up. So right. yeah, I just think it's a key point. 
to keep in mind because this will I guarantee you if you're ever getting an argument with one of these types, this will be something that can come in handy if they try to throw Mises in your face. Right. And yeah, these types uh, that, yeah, that refer to themselves as uh, classical liberals also, I would say, don't even adhere to classical liberalism, as you're kind of saying. They don't, they don't really uh, fully, they don't even uh, come close to fully agreeing with uh, Mises because they ignore, yeah, all the secession stuff and the stuff that you just pointed out. But they are like closer to progressives, whereas, uh, you know, Mises, I guess, would probably be more like along the lines of, I don't even know, like if, you would say he'd be more similar to like Bastiat or somebody like that, like more along like the classical liberal lines. I do think that uh, Mises still, you know, was getting some things wrong where I think he put like too much faith in that type of system and like didn't really like realize how out of control it was going to grow. Maybe is the way that I would put it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you got to think he was one of the trailblazers of his line of thinking and he was an early one. So yeah. I mean, every one of these subsequent thinkers have put on different spins. Like you had yeah. Mises, who, and then Rothbard expanded on his his insights to create, you know, more Rothbard. You know, Hoppe expanded on Rothbard. Uh, really, I would even say Hawken yeah. expounded on Rothbard, going a slightly different way than Hoppe. I'm sure there will be, you know, thinkers in the future that expand on Hoppe. You know, like yeah. it, you'll find different. I mean, you could probably say that with somebody like maybe like Kinsella or somebody. I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a name that come to mind, like a student Possibly. or something. Yeah. yeah, maybe like, yeah, one of the other like things that I uh, take issue with with Mises, I don't know if it comes up in uh, this book here, but uh, he also like would point out that uh, democracy like lent itself to a more like peaceful, uh, he, he almost said it right there in that uh, quote there, like more uh, peaceful uh, transfer power, which I don't really agree with, so. Well, I mean, once again, the key distinction being if you're assuming in this government you have the secession aspect. So I, I think that would yeah, make a huge difference. It's also so. kind of, well, compared to what is kind yeah. of a question, but yeah. All right, let's finish this little section. There's a little uh, little summary or a little like a conclusion to this section, and I'll pass it off to you. All right. Hence, Mises' answer as to how to assure that a government will protect property rights is through the threat of unlimited secession and its own characteristic of voluntary membership. All right, on yeah. to you. On to Pretty you, dope. Yeah. All right. Um. So now, uh, all right, yeah, so that, that last uh, section, yeah, we were already back to a Hoppe uh, talking there, so we were done with the uh, Mises quote already. Yes. Yeah. All right. I do not wish to further investigate Mises' ideas of democratic government here, but to turn instead to the modern definition of democracy and the question of its compatibility with the foundation of liberalism, that of private property and its protection. So as he was you know, pointing out before, uh, as I believe Mises would agree with, private property is kind of the root of all, um, I, mean, I mean, that's the root of libertarian thinking. It's the root of property ownership, the root, the root of morality, essentially. So uh, yeah. All right. It might be argued that Mises' definition of democratic government was applicable to the U.S. until 1861. So like you said, until uh, the Civil War broke out, essentially. Until then, it was generally held that the right to secession existed and that the Union was nothing but a voluntary association of independent states. However, after the crushing defeat and devastation of the secessionist confederacy by Lincoln and the Union, it was clear that the right to secede no longer existed and that democracy meant absolute and unlimited majority rule. Nor does, it, nor does it appear that any state since that time has met Mises' definition of democratic government. Instead, like their American model, all modern democracies are compulsory membership organizations. Yeah, much the same uh, that we were talking about earlier. I don't think there's much to say there. Right. Um, however, um, so Mises, uh, you know, because Mises, like, was escaped Nazi Germany, right? So he, his time period was like the mid 1900s, essentially. So he was alive well after uh, this had happened, but I guess like didn't really, uh, I, I don't know, make that observation, I guess, about uh, the civil war being a real uh, turning point as Hoppe points out in this book repeatedly that it was uh, really when like centralization of power uh, started happening in the U S yeah, I have a feeling he probably addressed it somewhere at some point. I don't. Yeah, know I, I probably I have not read enough Mises to uh, yeah. answer yeah. that, but yeah, um, it's all the more surprising that Mises never subjected this modern model of democracy to the same systematic analysis that he had applied to princely government. So Hoppe is kind of saying that there. 
To be sure, no one has been more farsighted regarding the destructive effects of modern government social and economic policies than Mises. And no one has recognized more clearly the dramatic increase of state power in the course of the 20th century. But Mises never connected these phenomena systematically with modern compulsory democracy. Nowhere did he suggest that the decline of liberalism and the dominance of anti-capitalist political ideologies in this century of socialism, social democracy, democratic capitalism, social market economics, or whatever other label has been attached to various anti-liberal programs and policies, finds its systematic explanation in majoritarian democracy itself. Yep. So, yeah, so now, you know, he is saying that, yeah, Mises sort of failed to, like, apply that, uh, which is kind of what I was getting at, like, yeah. sort of failed to apply that line of thinking to what we were observing uh, with, like, the growth of uh, the U.S. and the growth of different, yeah, like, Western states, essentially. Yeah, I'll generally defer to Hoppe on that. I'm sure he has a better uh, mm. knowledge of Mises' work than I do. Uh, but, yes. uh, you know, maybe there's some Mises individual out there that would, uh, you know, agree, like disagree and be like, well, he said this here and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Uh, but for, yeah, it does seem to be, you know, once again, uh, no one's perfect. Uh, you know, I'm sure yeah. I could find things I disagree Rothbard with Rothbard on. So, yeah, I mean, I think Hoppe is basically saying that Mises like kind of never really wrote about that. I think it's kind of what he's saying. There. Yeah, maybe. All right. Um, yeah. Not that he was necessarily wrong, but that he didn't address it. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, I forget. I, oh, yeah. I was just going to point out that, yeah. So, like, so Hoppe is like still kind of holding on to like the, the real classical definition of liberalism. Whereas I think that at this point, like, it should just kind of be thrown out because everybody just associates the current definition of liberalism with, with it, which is really anti liberal, as Hoppe does point out here. So, you know, I just don't really find much use in using that term anymore other than to describe the neoliberal uh, progressives but yeah mm -hmm. all right what i propose to do here is to fill in the gap left by mises and provide an analysis of the logic of majoritarian democracy thereby making modern history our age intelligible and predictable i do want to point out real quick nowhere has hoppe disagreed with mises necessarily like right he, like because he agreed with his position on monarchy Correct. Yeah, like, but he's just saying it's preferable to democracy. He still thinks it's yes. not good. Right. You know, it's definitely you know an affront to the you know to private property. You yeah, know, like definitely uh, agrees with them on secession. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but all right. Uh, without the right to secession, a democratic government is economically speaking a compulsory territorial monopolist of protection and ultimate decision making jurisdiction, and is in this respect indistinguishable from princely government. Just as princes did not allow secession, so it is outlawed under democracy. Furthermore, as implied in the position of a compulsory monopolist, both democratic government as well as princes possess the right to tax. That is, both are permitted to determine unilaterally, without consent of the protected, the sum that the protected must pay for their own protection. Yep. From this common classification as compulsory monopolies, a fundamental similarity of both princely and democratic government can be deduced. Under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection will continually rise and the quantity and quality of justice and protection fall. Qua expropriating property protector, a tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms and will inevitably lead to more taxes and less protection. Even if, as liberals advocate, a government uh, limited its activities exclusively to the protection of pre-existing property rights, the further question of how much protection to produce arises. Motivated as everyone is by self-interest and the disutility of labor, but with the unique power to tax, a government agent's response will invariably be the same, to maximize expenditures on protection and conceivably almost all of a nation's wealth can be consumed by the cost of protection and at the same time to minimize the actual production of protection. The more money one can spend and the less one must work to produce, the better off one will be. Yeah, to put that in layman's terms, essentially by getting rid of the right of secession, it is you know, de facto become a monopolistic thing. And he was saying it's no different than uh, monarchies in that way. 
and mm. in this in this in he d- brings it to protection and the idea that the state is a in most ways is a monopoly in protection i mean yeah. i guess you could say there are private uh, private uh, you know people you can pay to protect yourself but you're also getting money stolen to for that purpose so it's like you're less able to be able to afford such things yeah. yada 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 but the point is and you know functionally speaking it is the only ones generally with cops with courts whatever what have you um and -hmm. so the idea being it's a monopoly and now if it's a monopoly if it's the only business in town and it is able to you know reduce prices uh raise prices uh, reduce quality increase quality at its own whim uh you know uh i mean i'm sure you know a lot of people would be be like well they could just you know make it entirely awful tomorrow yeah i mean it's like the boiling frog thing you can't do it immediately overnight uh you might end up with some issues but Point being is generally speaking, you have no recourse if they if they increase it, increase the price, they decrease the quality. And so if anything, because you have no recourse, they have no reason not to. So like this one, a lot of things. This is probably one of the biggest things that people who still latch onto government miss is the concept of incentives. Mm-hmm. They have every incentive. That doesn't mean in every single occasion they will do this thing. It just means the trend over time is that it will do this because these are the way the incentives point. They have every incentive to do it. They have almost no incentives to going the other way. So, right. Yeah. Uh, there was yeah a lot, uh, as you said, this is a pretty meaty uh, chapter here. And there, there was kind of a lot in there. Like Hoppe um, offers like one of his uh, like most negative uh, points about a monarchy in that paragraph or a couple of paragraphs that I just read there, where he points out that a monarchy was still opposed to secession and like basically wouldn't let you do it. Like you couldn't like break off from that monarchical state and create your own state really. Or maybe it might've been easier to do that. You'd have to do it with like some amount of force and there'd probably be force attempted against you if you wanted to do that. But his point I believe would be that because the monarchy grows much more slowly than this like Western democracy type of government that grows and centralizes itself way quicker that the monarchies uh, kind of remain smaller and they, compete with each other so you like as an individual it'd be easier for you to like leave one and go to another essentially so they kind of had to compete with each other and you know he would he's made the point like in this book that these monarchies kind of would like be more incentivized to not go to war with each other and not like try to like confiscate each other's territory but more you know like engage in more like uh, trade and like deals and stuff like that with the other ones and stuff like that so you know all of that comes to mind there and then he's talking about um he he sort of hinted that Mises got something wrong there with kind of uh the fact that uh Mises was kind of promoting like that um you know sort of like the US like constitutional form of government if you want to look at it that way like a small government that is there to just protect property and I think Hoppe would definitely agree that uh if a government were to do that 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 would be preferable to any other form of government essentially but that it is just not in the government's nature to do that and remain that way. As he's pointing out here, the government is going to use like fear, constant fear tactics, as of course we see recently with COVID and all this shit. It's, it's always like, you know, shove fear down everybody's throats and we will protect you from this. Yep. It's able to grow itself yeah, rapidly that way. All right. You want to finish this section since it's only one paragraph and I'll take us to the end after that. Sure. Moreover, a monopoly of jurisdiction will inevitably lead to a steady deterioration in the quality of protection. If one can appeal exclusively to government for justice, justice will be distorted in favor of government. In favor of government, constitutions, and appeals courts, oh, sorry, will be distorted in favor of government, constitutions, and appeal courts notwithstanding. Constitutions and appeals courts are government constitutions Wow, he, he's wording this a little strangely. All right. Constitutions and appeals courts are government constitutions and agencies, and any limitations on government action they might provide are invariably decided by agents of one and the same institution. Predictably, the definition of property and protection will continually be altered, and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the government's advantage. Yeah, so, the, key, yeah. the key line in there is... Any limitations on government action they may pr- might provide are invariably decided by agents of one and the same institution. Right. We have that's one of the main things. One of the illusions, the things we're taught in grade school is 
checks and balances, checks and balances. We have the executive, the judicial, and we have uh, the God. I'm having a brain for legislative. Legislative. These these are all ones, and they they check each other with power. It's like at the end of the day, they work for the same institution. Yes. Like I get it. Like they are. They have different roles, so they will at times be at odds, and they will at times check each other because they are to some some extent different entities. But at the end of the day, they work for the same institution. And generally speaking, there will be a bias in that direction. There is no way to avoid that. Like, like yeah. there's no way to avoid that whatsoever. So over the long course of time, it will deteriorate. Like, yes, like the Supreme Court will occasionally, and they usually are fairly decent about coming in and enforcing stuff in the way they probably should. Generally speaking, they haven't been good on everything. They've been awful on a lot of shit. But, nah. you know, they, they, you know, every now and then they come in with a clinch. You're like, oh, hell yeah. But over time, Very it slowly deteriorates, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it really, yeah, it depends on the makeup of the Supreme Court, of course. And actually, like, that, that was actually one of the only good things that Trump did was uh, be able to get, like, three judges appointed there to uh, take the majority of the Supreme Court, which is, like, the reason why, why Roe v. Wade uh, was thrown out, something like that, which I did not expect that to happen. So like there were, and I think there was a uh, a good like uh, gun control decision that was handed down by that Supreme Court as well. So like very occasionally, but I would say for the most part they're awful. And I think this is a point that um, Rothbard makes in Anatomy of the State, um, yep. where he's yeah talking about how the Constitution is not going to work. It's not going to limit the exact same government that is interpreting it. Like yep. they'll be able to interpret it the way they want. And this is you know where you have the supreme court uh for a long time now saying well the constitution is a living breathing document basically totally loosely interpreting it and saying we can interpret this like any way we want with you know the general welfare clause and all these other things like some of those things that just get taken you know totally out of control even though you were um familiar with the constitution you know like what the founding fathers are actually intended like there really is only like one way to interpret some of these things yeah but at the end of the day law is what is enforced so Mm. yeah like they're like oh it's a living document in a certain way they're kind of right because they're the ones who get to interpret it and they're the ones who get to enforce it so in a certain sense they're kind of right (laughs) yeah yeah. yeah. the other thing uh hoppa is uh you know talking about here is uh, one of his like specialties where he has books that are specifically on this topic of uh, defense production. And he's saying that, of course, a government uh, becomes a monopoly on the production of defense and you have nowhere else to go. So they're not incentivized to provide quality. There is no way to you know hold them accountable for this. So it's pretty obvious and inevitable that they're going to fail at doing that. Yep. While they are both inconsistent with the protection of life and property, Princely and democratic government are also different in one fundamental respect. The decisive difference lies in the fact that entry into a princely government is systematically restricted by the prince's personal discretion. While under democracy, entry into and participation in government is open to everyone on equal terms. Mm. Anyone not just a, a, a hereditary class of nobles is permitted to become a government official and exercise any government function. Uh, all the way up to that of prime minister or president. Typically, the distinction between restricted versus free entry into government and the transition from princely to democratic government has been interpreted as an advance towards liberalism, from a society of status and privilege to one of equality before the law. But this is but this interpretation rests on a fundamental misunderstanding. From a classical liberal point of view, democratic government must be considered worse than, uh, than in the regression from princely government. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything to add at this point. Um, I mean, he's he's made the point uh, already about sort of like the the entry uh, into government, where with you know the democratic government, where there are way more people in the government, the entry into the government becomes uh, yeah easier, like for yeah anybody to do it. Whereas the uh, monarch would be like severely restricting to, like just his family, essentially, or something like that. And Hoppe is saying that that is. Uh, or, or at least very, uh, in many cases, can be preferable uh, to democracy. Uh, the, the thing about democracy, I guess I would say that uh, it's sort of like not necessarily everybody get it, can get into it, but like it's everybody that buys into it, yeah. if that makes sense. Like as we're sort of seeing 
in uh, the recent years uh, where there's this huge push, you know, from the corporate press and stuff like that, that these certain people who obviously uh, don't totally buy into this, like they, they're unacceptable. They cannot hold these positions of power, you know? Yeah. There's still a, there's still a class divide for sure. Uh, It's just the idea is they try to blur the class divide to the greatest degree they can possible. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They do that like in people's minds, especially. Yeah. So it's the thought yeah, that anybody can, get into these positions. Yeah. When in reality that pace that doesn't, that doesn't play out in reality. Yeah. And we are ruling ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Uh, free and equal entry into government democratic equality is something entirely different from and incompatible with the classical liberal concept of one universal law equally applicable to everyone everywhere. And at all times, liberalism Mises noted strives for the greatest possible unification of law in the last analysis for world unity of law. However, free entry into government does not accomplish this goal. To the contrary, the objectionable inequality of the higher law of princes versus subordinate law of ordinary subjects is preserved under democracy in the separation of public versus private law and the supremacy of the former over the latter. Under democracy, everyone is equal insofar as entry into government is open to all in the same terms. In a democracy, no personal privileges or privileged persons exist. However, functional privileges and privileged functions exist. As long as they act in an official capacity, democratic government agents are governed and protected by public law and thereby occupy a privileged position vis-a-vis persons acting, acting under the mere authority of private law. Most fundamentally in being permitted to support their own activities by taxes and imposed on private law subjects. Privileges, discrimination, and protectionism do not disappear. To the contrary, rather than being restricted to princes and nobles, privileges, discrimination, and protection can be exercised by and accorded to everyone. It's a good point. It's a really good point. I like the way you laid it out. Hmm. Oh, you, you, it has scratched. You had to think about that one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I might have to think about that one a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I like it because I mean, it was kind of what we were talking about before. The idea that, you know, uh, it, 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 they, may, they give you the idea that the dem- democracy kind of fools you into thinking that there are no two, these separate classes. We're one and the same. Yeah. It blurs the lines, whereas exactly. he's making the point that's not the case. And like technically in a certain sense, there are no per- personal privileges or privileged persons, although I mean, there kind of are. He's talking about the roles, the functions. The yeah. senator, the the president, the the soldier, the cop, the whatever right. they they are governed by different rules. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's his his, his yeah. point here. I would assume is that yeah, the people that get into these positions of power, they become above the law, so they essentially have a different set of laws that they need to abide by than the rest of us. If that's what he's saying, then yeah, that's definitely true. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying there are, there are privileged roles. It's the role that gives it to you. So mm-hmm. the point being is that. It because he was kind of getting at that liberalism is strives for the greatest possible unification of law, or, or no, um, the concept of one universal law equally applicable to everyone, everywhere, and at all times. That is not the case. If anything, it made it right. more perverse because now essentially the privileges, discrimination, protection can be like this is last line can be exercised by and accorded to everyone. So now right. everyone theoretically has the ability to be able to exercise these. Uh, you know, discriminatory or being unequal uh, in, in a in a in a law type sense. So it, right, you know, it's- yeah. So essentially, like having a global set of laws. Like uh, the the question, I guess, would be like, well, who is enforcing that? Like, if it is a global government and they're deciding what these laws are, and that's the worst possible situation that you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like a boomer g- gun control people. It will bring right. this point. And it's a good point. They'll be like, well, you know, you're going to take away my guns. You're going to take away the cops guns. You can take away the military guns. It's like, it's a good, kind of a good point. Like it's the point that they're making here. It's like right. when they enforce these rules, they don't apply to them. Like, right. So, yeah. Right. So I think, yeah. In this like sort of classical liberal view, I think the sort yeah. of the thinking there would be that this like global set of laws is sort of like, there are like just these specific like private property laws essentially that actually apply to everybody in the world, which is essentially like, you know, just core libertarianism. Like everybody has the right to life and to property and property ownership and stuff like that. But of course, when you have a government that is not going to be 
the law that they are enforcing, you know? Yes, the government's always going to be held to a different standard. Right. And not a higher one. <laughs> yeah. Um, predictably, under democratic conditions, the tendency of every compulsory monopoly to increase prices and decrease quality is strengthened. As a hereditary monopolist, a prince regards the territory and people under his jurisdiction as his personal property and engages in the monopolistic exploitation of his property. Under democracy, exploitation does not disappear. Even though everyone is permitted to enter government, this does not eliminate the distinction between the rulers and the ruled. Mm-hmm. Government and the governed are not one and the same person. Instead of a prince who considers the country his private property, a temporary and interchangeable caretaker is put in monopolistic charge. The caretaker does not own the country, but as long as he is in office, he is permitted to use it to his and his protege's advantage. He owns its current use, usufruct. What the fuck that means, but not its capital stock. This does not eliminate exploitation. Rather, it makes exploitation less calculating and carried out with little or no regard to the capital stock. In other words, it is short-sighted. So once again, makes it worse. <laughs> so yeah, usufruct is, I guess, the right to enjoy the use and advantages of another's property short of the destruction or waste of its substance. All right. Yeah. Okay, that's a Good word in in regards to here. Well, all right, that worked here. <laughs> that really that really does work to explain uh, monarchy to some extent. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one. There's a, that was a very dense uh, paragraph, a lot in there as well. Yeah, uh, sort of. He's kind of saying what we just said, where like there is definitely this distinction still between. And, I mean, this is sort of this is one of the main points that he makes over and over again throughout this book, which is yeah, one of the great points in this book is that there is uh, still definitely this distinction between the ruling class and the ruled class. It's just that in the democracy, those lines are blurred completely so that people don't see what they are. Yeah, essentially. And they, and they think it's better. Like, well, if any one of us can get in here, we have, we can make things better. And it's like, uh, no, if right. anything, it makes it worse. It makes, the evil the government imposes is accessible to more people, and it really makes things worse in a lot of ways. Both hereditary princes and democratic caretakers can increase their current spending by means of higher taxes. However, a prince tends to avoid increasing taxes if this leads to capital consumption, a drop in the present discounted value of the capital stock of which he is the owner. In contrast, a caretaker shows no such reluctance. While he owns the present tax revenue, he does not own the capital stock from which it's derived. Others do. Accordingly, under democratic conditions, taxation increases far beyond its level under princely rule. We've covered this a lot. I don't feel like we need a commentary of that paragraph. Yeah, I mean, unless people are just going to watch like these chap, like this chapter, these episodes as like a one-off. Like, I don't know. Uh, So basically, I mean, I guess we kind of said it already tonight that like in the monarchy, uh, like they're going to sort of be incentivized to spend less or like waste less of what they have because they have heirs to pass it on to. I I think it's essentially the point that he's making again there. Yes. In addition, both princes and caretakers can increase their current spending by means of debt. And endowed with the power to tax, both tend to incur more debt than would private citizens. However, whereas a prince assumes a liability against his personal property whenever he borrows from the non-governmental public, a democratic caretaker is free of any such consideration. He can enjoy all the benefits of higher current spending while the liability and concurrent drop in property values falls upon others. Mm-hmm. Accordingly, a government debt is higher and increases faster under democratic conditions than under princely rule. I like that, that one sentence. He can enjoy all the benefits of higher current spending while yes. the liability and concurrent drop in property values falls upon others. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, in the democratic form of government, yeah, the ruling class can, yeah, just spend all of that. They can, uh, yeah, enjoy all the benefits of that while it's the taxpayers, the public essentially is left, yeah, paying for all of it. Yeah, so. a, a larger amount of uh, positives and less negatives for on their part. You know, mm-hmm. as long as they don't go too buck wild with it, you know, uh, end up on a pike kind of deal. But right. Uh, Whereas I think, you know, Hoppe would say like in the monarchic system, like if the, um, the monarch is uh, spending, you know, too much of what he has or whatever, uh, you know, yeah, I guess enjoying all those benefits, 
it actually might be like detrimental uh, more like to himself and to his uh, heirs. So, yeah, I mean, there is, you're going to ca- cause more unrest within your thing. There's a, you know, like he brings up, there's a huge, there's a bigger divide between the rulers and the ruled in, in a monarchy. Uh, Cause they don't have this idea of like that we are the government. So you're more likely to see some sort of, you know, uh, you know, guillotine type action or something uh you know know, so in the short term it can cause him problems also in the long term it can cause him problems because he's just going to create economic problems in the in the later he's going to lose some land he's going to have to you know uh, it's it's not going to work out well for him uh, whereas it makes all the more sense for him to uh operate better than a democracy still not Mm -hmm. you know perfectly because uh an, an entity ruled by one person is you know he's only one person so yeah Finally, both princes and caretakers can use their compulsory monopoly to, uh, power to gain control over the money supply. So both can also increase their own present spending by inflating the supply of money. However, a prince who inflates the money supply will weigh two factors, his immediate enrichment and the fact that as the inevitable result of a larger money supply, the future purchasing power of money and of his, future, his own future taxes will be lower. Unlike a prince, a democratic caretaker is concerned only with his immediate enrichment. For he does not own current and future tax revenues. He only Mm. owns the present tax revenue. So he is solely concerned with the present purchasing power of money. By increasing the money supply, he can increase his present purchasing power. While the intended lower purchasing power of money and tax receipts must be borne in the future of others or by others. Accordingly, money, uh, accordingly, money inflation will also be more prevalent under democratic conditions and under princely rule. All right. And we add, this is where we're going to kill it. At this point. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good uh, place to kill it. But yeah, that uh, there was a lot uh, in that. Uh, yeah, so we're doing half of this chapter essentially tonight, yeah. and then the other half, uh, yeah, next episode, uh, and then we'll be done with chapter three in two episodes. But yeah, the um, that paragraph again, like there's a lot of meat uh, to this uh, chapter, and for the first time tonight, maybe uh, we're gonna say uh, this is definitely uh, he's talking about time preference here because mm-hmm. he does uh, apply time preference to his arguments throughout this whole book and uh he's applying it to money printing here which is interesting because uh of course when the uh, money supply gets inflated uh the fir- this is uh the cantillon effect basically which uh you know we see happening now with the u.s government printing all this money the first people that get that money they're going to be able to use that money and spend it right now while uh, before it is impacted prices so inflation is the increase in the money supply and it is not actually increase in prices, which uh, is a result of the inflation. So these first people, and in this case, you know, in the U.S., it's going to be these the politically connected people, the big banks, like whoever, like these people get the money first, they can spend that money before prices have increased all across the board. And then by the time that like ripples throughout the economy, uh, you know, the people that are not the politically connected, like you and me, like the general like taxpayer and stuff like that. Not only are we getting nailed by taxes, but we're getting nailed by this uh, inflation while the politically connected are still like, you know, enriching themselves further by getting that money first. By the time that we wind up seeing more of this money, like in the form of like wages increasing and stuff like that, that money has already, you know, been like used in the economy or whatever. We're just going to like the prices have already increased before we see it. Right. So uh, we, we're just left with, uh, less wealth essentially because the dollar uh, gets devalued and what he's saying here uh, uh he's saying that there is less of that effect in a monarchy because the incentives line up such that the monarch knows that he has this you know line of heirs or whatever his family are going to be taking over what he has and that includes the money that he has and he doesn't want that money to become so devalued that he has nothing in that respect to leave to his heirs, whether it be like the money that he's taking from taxes or whatever else. Um, so he's going to want to, uh, he's actually incentivized to maintain the value of that money more so. So he may print less of the money and devalue the money less than what will happen in the uh, democratic government where they're just extremely low time pre- or ex- sorry, extremely high time preference to the point where they just are incentivized to spend it right away. Yep. If, if that all makes sense. Yeah. All right, man. Let's draw plugs. Get out of here. All right. Uh, I'm Toad uh, at Tower Gang Toad. Now, as we rebranded, uh, we are the Tower Gang podcast. Uh, that's me, Jose, 
Fat Dave, aka Cole, Clint from Liberty Lockdown, Top Lobster, and sometimes Reed Coverdale. And we hit episode 100 last night. We did a little bit of a longer episode, did a lot in that episode. Uh, it was fun times. Uh, it's offensive comedy, so if you're into that, uh, go check that out. Wednesdays at 9, 11 p.m., uh, formerly Tower Power Hour, now the Tower Gang. Yeah, we're getting all professional over there. We got, even got a producer now that works the behind the scenes stuff. We're getting that's right. We have, we have a little dicky. Yeah, we have our own young Jamie, just like uh, just like Rogan. Hey, pull that up. You know, that's our. We got one of those now. So it, uh, it's making the show flow a lot better. That that episode home was a banger. Uh, I, I really, I really, that was that was a good episode. So I highly people suggest people check that out. Also, yeah. I'd suggest if you haven't already, uh, go check out my episode with Patriot J, my Four Pony Boys. I do my Four Pony Boys. You guys, if you follow the channel, you know. It's uh, the four pony boys are me, Top Lobster, Reed Coverdale, and Clint Russell. Uh, we don't always, not all of them show up to every episode, but we'll usually bring up another guy. So it'll be five, or, you know, one of them will drop out and be four. But we had Patriot J for this one. And Patriot J was only able to do like an hour, and they had to leave. Uh, and then Jason Rink, uh, you know, the documentary filmmaker, uh, you know, he showed up. And he was also the guy, we talked a lot about Ye in that episode, who dr drove Ye to the uh, airport and was hung out with him basically all night. It was kind of cool. He gave his story. It was the first place he talked about it. I just suggest checking awesome. it out. That was, a, that was a really good episode. Also, uh, Olivia Rondo, uh, you know, she's a Fox News contributor, showed up to fucking uh, – Showed up to showed up as well because that's Patriot J's girlfriend. She shot yeah. the shit with us for a minute. Bounce. I uh, was just checking out. It was a really good one. I uh, really enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, this is No Way Jose Show. You can find me YouTube, all major all podcasters, Odyssey as well. If you want to follow me on Twitter at Senor Jose Twenty Twenty, uh, you want to support me, uh, Patreon.com No Way Jose Twenty Twenty. Give me those two bucks, please. Uh, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. With that, we are out. Appreciate it, everyone who watches. Thanks. Love you guys. Bye.